It's time for Moment of Truth with David Moses. Element. Element. Element FM. Welcome to Moment of Truth. I'm your host, David Moses. You're listening to 106.5 FM in Toronto and 95.7 FM in Ottawa. And it is a pleasure to welcome those listeners on other radio stations that now carry Moment of Truth. It's nice to have you with us. As well as uh, if you listen on the iHeartRadio app, which you can now download and Take us with you anywhere you go. And it's a pleasure to also welcome those people that might be listening on their favorite podcast platform. Well, today in the show, we have two people here to discuss some new news that came out about uh, an Ontario Division court uh, dismissing the province's request to leave to appeal a November decision in which a judge rejected the government's motion to strike down the mother and uh, climate lawsuit before it reached a full hearing. And that landmark ruling marked the first time in history that a Canadian court has ruled climate change can threaten Canadians' fundamental rights. And it further affirmed that citizens have the ability to challenge a government's climate action under the Charter of Rights and Freedoms. And what's really interesting is that this is a youth-led Lawsuit. So it's a pleasure to have with us here on the show Shailen Wabagijig, and she is one of the youth representatives in this case, as well as Daniel Gallant, and she is a lawyer with Eco Justice, which is one of the uh, law firms that represent the applicants, and uh, along with them, uh, Stockwoods also represents them. So it's a pleasure to have them both here with us today. Welcome, Shailen and Danielle. Thanks for having us, David. Thank you. It's an honor to be here. Well, it's an honor to have you both with us today on the show and talk about this case. And maybe you can tell us a little bit about why you thought it was important to take this case forward. Shailen, seven of you, right, that are involved with this? Yes, there's seven of us. And EcoJustice had been working on this case for a couple years before, um, and they approached uh, multiple youth climate leaders in Ontario, and I was one of them. Um, So I was really honored that I have this platform to share um, my concerns and my voice um, in this lawsuit. Yeah. Hmm. Okay, Danielle, do you want to add anything to that? Yeah, so perhaps explaining a bit a bit further the kind of context of the case. Mm. So as you rightly mentioned, this case is being brought on behalf of seven Ontario youth, including Shailen. Um, they're all youth climate leaders in various fields and, and from various parts of the province as well. And they range in age. Uh, at the time we launched the case, they were 12 to 24, obviously a little older now, but uh, mm. but all youth representatives that have acted on, on climate change. And the case is really about Ontario repealing its fairly progressive climate targets and replacing them with one inadequate target for 2030. So that's really the the core premise of the case and the action that we wanted to challenge. Hmm. And now, when did this decision come down? What was the actual so, date that this so came the, in? 
I'd have to look back to see the okay. exact date in November that this came through, but it was this past uh, November of 2020. And we launched the case um, in November of 2019. So it was great that just a, about a year after we launched the case, we got such a, a wonderful positive decision that allowed us to move forward. Right. So the second decision that was struck down, is that was that in November? Sorry, that's what I was trying to clarify. Oh, yes. So the most recent decision we actually only received last week on Thursday. And so what the second decision um, means was that Ontario was trying to seek leave to appeal that decision we received in November. So so this most recent decision was denying them the right to revisit the issues that were already decided on in the November decision. Uh, How did you guys feel when this decision came in that allowed you to move forward with this case? Were you expecting it? Yes, I personally was expecting it because I really believe that there is a very strong case that EcoJustice and all of us youth have brought forward that, um, you know, Indigenous youth in particular, it's, you know, our responsibility to question the way things are. um, And it's our responsibility to make sure that we listen to the earth and Mother Earth is telling us that we need to change our ways. And so we are telling the Ontario government that they need to change their ways and make their climate targets based on science and um, make sure that we take the steps necessary to avoid climate catastrophe. So for me, I really, um, I have hope now that this uh, case can move forward and so that we can enshrine those rights into the charter. Mm. Okay, and Danielle? Yeah, I, I would just echo what what Sheila and already already eloquently said, and and you know just also repeat what you mentioned earlier that what's really thrilling about this decision is the fact that it's historic. It's really the first time that a court in Canada has ruled the way it has that you know climate change is a threat to fundamental rights, and and citizens can you know rise up and try to challenge their governments in action when they fail to address the climate crisis so truly exciting for those reasons and also for a second reason because it means that our case will be able to move forward so because of this motion to strike procedure that ontario had initiated we we had to sort of take this side route and debate this issue before we were able to actually move forward with the case so what the implications of this most recent decision Um, are is that we are able to move forward to what's called the merits of the case, you know, the substance, the Mm. real issues involved, Mm -hmm. rather than debating things like, are courts well-placed to handle climate climate issues and, Mm. you know, whether or not it's even possible to, to prove climate harms. Now that we've gotten past that threshold, we'll be able to put forward the really important evidence on the harms that climate change will cause in the future. Which should all be self-evident, I guess, in many ways um, that we all know Mm -hmm. about and have heard about, uh, especially in the last couple of years, uh, very much led by youth who are bringing this forward. Uh, If we go back and look at what was happening prior to our COVID lockdown, uh, you know, in uh, in 2020. Now, you say, you know, getting to the the meat of this, uh, you're finally going to be able to get to. But I guess the the process, if we can just stay with, with you, Danielle, for a second, about going through this actual process and going through these challenges, how do you think that will, if you can speculate on how this might affect future cases around the environment, etc.? That's an excellent question. I mean, I, I would say that in Canada, uh, climate cases are fairly 
novel in the mm. sense that they're they're not necessarily things that have been debated in, in courts for years before. Mm. And so every decision that we get on on a case relating to climate change is extremely important because we know that it's most likely that any case that is subsequently launched will refer to to those decisions. So, for instance, um, last week, we also received a really promising decision from the Supreme Court of Canada on the um regarding the the federal carbon pricing scheme and mm. whether or not that was within mm. um, their 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 power to enact but even though it was a very distinct issue there were some really promising things that were said in that decision regarding for instance the fact that climate change poses a grave threat to humanity's future that it has to be addressed through reducing GHG emissions and that each province's emissions contributes to the climate crisis so every time we get one of these key decisions that lays the foundation um, regarding the facts of climate change and the, and the fact that we have to act, um, those things will most certainly be referenced in, in future climate cases. Okay. Shailen, I'd like to come back to you for a second in terms of what you were talking about in terms of being Indigenous and and your view of the world and Mother Earth. And so I'm, I'm really wondering, what do you think about that idea that it, it's really coming back around to uh, the Indigenous ways of thinking about Mother Earth? Yes, absolutely. You know, it's our responsibility to protect the earth and the land and, and the waters and the airs. Um, and we have been doing that. We have been screaming, but it, it feels muffled. And, you know, with all of the green, um, you know, propaganda, for, for lack of a better word, in all of these organizations, you know, going green and trying to, um, you know, avoid, you know, or promote anti-racism. Mm. Um, so those efforts are really towards justice. Um, and I think that justice uh, goes to the land, um, but also in Canada, in the context, in the Canadian context, it's with uh, Indigenous communities here. Um, so, you know, the climate uh you know, the context of climate change might be different in a place like Europe. Um, for example, I'm doing work with the United Nations and, you know, they don't have this treaty relationship. They don't have this um, history in their in their own places. Um, but for us here, um, that is very important. And um, that is definitely has always been Indigenous peoples on the front lines of that, um, you know, fighting for future generations with a long-term view of these issues. And, you know, we know how these in issues are all interconnected. You see that with environmental racism in Canada, for example. Um, but, you know, that is how we live. That is um, our worldview is, you know, to live in good relationship with all our relations and, um, you know, how we've been living is no way to treat our relatives. Um, we look at the land as a living being with spirit that um, is our relative, not as resource and capital to exploit. So, um, yes, I absolutely believe that Indigenous teachings um, uh, can bring us forward in a good way. You're listening to Moment of Truth on Element FM in Toronto and Ottawa. My guests here on the show are Shailene Wabagijig and Danielle Gallant. Now, Shailen, you are involved with this case with other youth. And speaking of 
you know, indigenous and non-indigenous. Some of those students that you're involved with in youth are non-indigenous. So, but obviously you have a like mind around this idea. What do you take away from their perspective in terms of what we were just talking about and what you were just saying about indigenous ideas and, and beliefs? Yes. Well, I mean, everyone has gifts that we have to bring to this. We have to um, tackle climate change with a unified approach that we understand um, that we have to treat the earth better. And, you know, it, it doesn't matter what race you are, because that that never mattered to indigenous peoples. Um, it's how you live. So, you know, how you live and how you understand the world, I think that's really what's most important. And we have so much in common, like even just as youth, um, that we can focus on the commonalities and uh, we are all fighting for our shared future, for a safe climate future. So, Mm. um, yeah, we get along really well. (laughs) It's good to hear, you know, uh, when you said a shared future and your future and you're doing this not only for the seven of you, you're doing it for all of us. And so, you know, uh, thank you all for for stepping forward and doing this. First of all, let me say that. Danielle, um, you know, in terms of that idea and in terms of what you as as a lawyer for eco justice, how do you see things in terms of going forward or in terms of looking back at, at protecting the environment? Do you feel that you are coming from this in, in a similar fashion towards uh, the idea of uh, of indigenous knowledge way back there somewhere that is that is uh, coming into this and represent and is being represented or is this a different a different aspect for you something different altogether just in terms of of law yeah so i'd say i definitely come to this you know with a different perspective and, and different background for me um i had studied climate litigation during my master's degree so i came at this at very much an first of all, an academic uh, point of view that I wanted to put in practice through my legal skills. Mm. But I would say that having worked with Shailen and the other Indigenous youth on the case, I found that I've learned so much from them. And it's honestly been one of the biggest opportunities of my legal career to be able to to really get their perspective and try and try and understand and be able to incorporate it as much as possible in in both the legal arguments and the way that we communicate about the case, because I think it's really important to elevate their voices as much as possible. Mm. If you don't mind, can I ask you uh, on the the big picture of uh, eco-justice and and the kind of cases that they handle and, and how long it's been around? I know it's a nonprofit organization. Yes, absolutely. So, so as you mentioned, we're we're a nonprofit organization, and and this is truly the largest um, climate lawsuit that we have brought to date. We do work on other issues surrounding the the, the climate, often regarding um, fossil fuel infrastructure and cases of that nature, but. The I'd say the significance of this case is really the ability to set a precedent um, regarding fundamental constitutionalized charter rights. And so the rights that we're you know, bringing forward in this case are, are really fundamental to all Ontarians. They're the rights to life, to liberty and security as a person, as well as the rights to equality. So, so really highlighting the way in which climate change has the, the possibility of... of um, 
of infringing upon those rights when governments refuse to act on that on that crisis. So I think for, from from the organization's perspective, that's truly what makes this this case um, significant. Mm. Is it only government issues that you look at? Mm-hmm. I would say, generally speaking, our cases are, are often more oriented towards governments, just the way that um, certain approval processes go forward. Mm. But we're certainly not ignoring the fact that private actors like corporations are a huge part of this this crisis as well. And so that's that's definitely something that we look we look to from a legal perspective to see how we could further challenge climate action from all actors, because we know that we need action from all sides to deal with this crisis. Mm. Danielle, you mentioned that you in, in working on this case and in working with these youth representatives, that you've learned a lot from the process and, and from them and looking at them and listening to them. It, can you give us a little bit of an example or something anything comes to mind for you? Absolutely. So, I, I mean, I'd say that compared to to the other types of clients that we usually represent, I find that youth, youth really bring this kind of pure perspective on these issues. They really see the distinction between right or wrong. And I'd say that they don't compromise as much on how we can achieve what is right. So for me, it's really been learning how to keep that that compass when looking at these issues of always keeping in mind what's important and what is right. Um, so to me, that's something that that the youth energy on this case has has really taught me. So I've been really thankful for that perspective. Mm. Okay. Now, when you say what is right and what is wrong, uh, Shailen, I'd like you to weigh in on this as well, because what I hear there is the gray area seems to stem stem from either what might be costly to do or what might be politically uh, damaging to my party. Uh, Those two things come to mind right off the top. Well, to me, I think the role of the government is to protect its citizens, of Mm. course, Mm. or else why would we give them the power that they have? Mm. And if they are not doing that job, then it's our responsibility as the citizens to tell them, you know, and and hold them accountable. And if they aren't making uh, the adequate steps, you know, in their policies and plans um, and their actions, even their attitudes, then we really, it's our responsibility to step in. Um, So we need to hold our governments accountable and, um, you know, take this issue forward because, you know, I see, I hear all of these arguments for, you know, destroying the land or polluting the water. And to me, it's just short-term thinking. And it's like, what are the consequences to that? So you don't do it and you lose a million dollars or you do it and you lose a river forever. So to me, it's it's pretty clear what is right and wrong um, without being, you know, the one who's losing the million dollars. But, you know, um, <laughs> I don't I think money's a construct. So anyway, thank you. Yeah, good, good. Thank you for, for sharing that. Danielle, when you listen to that argument, it sounds pretty, pretty clear when you put the, the, the money up against losing, losing a river for forever. Uh, what is the cost of that? Right. What is the cost to all of us? 
Yeah, absolutely. And I don't think that our, our legal systems have always done the best job of ensuring that there's a fair balancing of those issues. And so, you know, obviously we're, we're, we're a legal organization. And so we're trying to advocate for these issues in front of in front of courts and so make legal arguments um, regarding how those issues should be balanced. And so, as I was mentioning earlier here, we have a very strong basis for the case in the Charter of Rights and Freedoms. And so when you're confronted with a, a situation where if government Governments fail to act, there will be catastrophic climate change and really intense and frequent impacts on, on citizens like forest fires, heat waves, flooding. You know, there's a very compelling legal argument to be made there that governments need to act to protect their citizens against these future harms. You've got this no momentum to move forward because of this decision that came down to, and uh, now allows you to move forward uh, to challenge this in court. What are the next steps that you are looking at? How long might what might you be looking at before it gets back to the courts? I can take that on. So um, we don't yet know when a hearing will occur. This decision has been fairly recent. Um, and so we're still we're still reviewing it to see what it, what kind of implications it has for the case. Mm -hmm. But um, the next steps in this case would be um, filing all of the important evidence to show the types of har climate harms that would occur if, if government failed to act. Um, and also pushing to have a hearing where we will make legal arguments as early as possible, just given the timeline of the crisis. Mm. Um, so, so our ability to argue this case as early as possible would be would be you know fundamental in ensuring that we we catch those harms early enough that we can do something about them. Mm. At this point in time, when you do get back to the courts. What is the involvement, uh, Shaylin, for yourself and the other youth? Uh, is it now handed over entirely to the lawyers and, and, uh, and, and they do the work? Are you still involved with this process at this point in time? Is there something for you to do? Well, all of our affidavits, mm -hmm. um, we were supporting and writing that. Well, EcoJustice was supporting us. Mm -hmm. um, and so those are all going to be filed. And we, like the last hearing with the motion to strike decision last November, um, we were all invited into the court uh, Zoom. Mm -hmm. So we will probably be doing that again. And, um, you know, of course, being available for media interviews and that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. But yeah, we're just going to be watching the lawyers when the hearing happens. What comes to mind now, uh, Danielle, for you? What, what do you guys have to do? Well, I mean, there, there's a huge amount of climate climate science out there. Um, thankfully, the, there's been really fast evolution on on climate science, and so we need to evaluate what exists out there and and try and determine the best way that we can put that evidence forward to the to the court in a way that's both um, accurate and sufficiently elaborated, but also that's clear because climate science um, to to someone who's not a scientist is not always obvious to understand. So we have to make sure that we have sufficiently digested that information so that um, a court can can truly understand the legal significance of it. And I will say just to to um, go back to what Shailen was mentioning, that the client affidavits, which are, are documents in which they've laid out um, the ways in which they're concerned about climate change and the actions that they've taken in their own personal capacity to counter climate change will be really important evidence that we'll be sub submitting to the court and that the court will evaluate along with this climate science. And so I just wanted to highlight how important that involvement from, from the clients in this case is. Ah, so I think what I heard you just saying there, and I'll get you both to comment on this, is that if you are successful in this case, what is the outcome of 
where the government can go. And, and what I mean by that is, okay, so now, great, you've been able to, you, you've won this case. What does that mean for the government? What does it mean for us as people? And in your case, uh, what does it mean for, for you to say, okay, what's coming out of this? What, what's going to move forward? So I can speak to the legal um, side of that question. Mm -hmm. So what we're seeking to achieve in this case is uh, an order from the court that Ontario has to set a a science-based target. So it currently has a target that is not in line with what science tells us must be done to limit global warming to Mm -hmm. 1.5 degrees Celsius. So first of all, set a new target and also um, come up with a plan uh, that will allow it to achieve that target. But we're also hoping to to have a, a declaration from the courts that when governments fail to act on climate climate change, they infringe upon um, citizens' fundamental rights. So that in and of itself is a very important result. Mm. Um, But obviously, uh, the importance of such a case goes much further beyond than the courtroom itself. So I'll let Sheila speak to kind of the the broader importance of a win on this case. Great. Yes. So uh, in addition to what Danielle said, we will have a really good precedent for all future um, court cases, which is really, really exciting to be a part of that history. Um, You know, we really want to put pressure on governments to take climate change seriously. So that is a really big win. Um, We can have a a really fighting chance at securing a safe climate um, and safe Ontario um, for ourselves and and our future generations, um, but also those our non-human relatives. So, um, you know, that's really what I would like to see is that change in thinking and hopefully that systems change in how we think in in our relationship with the natural world. So um, not viewing nature as resources and capital, but as relatives, as I was saying. And um, I think, you know, the idea that some land can be sacrificed and others should be protected. And I think that that short um, short term thinking is really what got us here in the first place. So, you know, I would like to see that change within my lifetime so that I can live into old age and uh, see, you know, my my kids grow up, for, mm. for example. So, yeah, that's what I really hope comes out of this. Mm. And nicely said. Uh, Thank you both for taking the time to join us on the show and share the thoughts around this case. And, you know, it is a very important case. And that uh, date that you were talking about is is, uh, 2030 is the date that we're talking about, correct? Yes, the target that uh, that the focus of this case is on is a 2030 target, but it will influence the degree of action that Ontario takes even even today on, on climate. And so it's something that given the, the, the state of the climate crisis, we know that every action counts, even those mm-hmm. that are taken now for future climate change. So right. so we are saying that that 2030 target matters for for today. It mattered yesterday, sure. um, but it certainly will matter for for future generations. Absolutely. Well, Again, thank you both for taking the time to join us on the show. It has been a pleasure speaking with you both. And I really hope that you will uh, keep us in the loop and let us know uh, of any future actions, any future changes and updates that you have so that we can bring you back on the show and get this message out there. Great. Well, thank you so much for inviting us and for your interest in, in this matter and highlighting these issues. 
Absolutely. It's, uh, like I said, our pleasure and one we should all be interested in. So thank you again for joining us, Shailen Wabigijig and Danielle Galant. So a lawyer with EcoJustice and Shailen Wabigijig is one of the youth representatives uh, that are in this case uh, and an applicant of the case that are represented from EcoJustice and Stockwood. Well, that wraps up this part of the show. Please don't go away because we will, of course, have more coming up right after the break here on Moment of Truth on Element FM. Now back to Moment of Truth with David Moses. Element, Element, Element FM. Welcome back to Moment of Truth. You're listening to Element FM in Toronto and Ottawa. That is 106.5 in Toronto, 95.7 in Ottawa. And of course, you can also listen on the iHeartRadio app if you download the app and type in 106.5 ELMNTFM or 95.7 ELMNTFM. You might also be listening to Moment of Truth on one of the other radio stations that now carry the show. We welcome you as well. Or if you're listening on your favorite podcast platform, great. We all welcome you to the show as well. It is also a pleasure to welcome to the show my guests for this portion of Moment of Truth. We have with us the writers, producers, and directors of Violation. We have Madeline Sims-Fewer and Dusty Mancinelli. And it's a pleasure to have them both here to talk about Violation. A Violation premiered uh, at TIFF. Uh, in the fall of 2020, and it has now gone on to uh, be distributed across Canada. Had its premiere actually on uh, just uh, this month, earlier this month, and it's uh, now available. And it's a pleasure to have both of you with us here on the show. So I'd like to say welcome, first of all. Hi, it's really nice to be here. Yeah, thanks for having us. Yeah, it's a pleasure to have you both with us. And I have to admit a certain awkwardness to interview you both <laughs> just because of the nature of this film um it's it's dark and one of the things i found about this film that was the most uh creepy were the transition scenes because mm-hmm. they were so long and drawn out and the music, oh, the music just kind of, you know, fingernails on the blackboard kind of thing. That's how it struck me. Has anyone mentioned that to you before? Yeah, I mean, I, it was always a challenge because this is a nonlinear narrative to find a way to transition from the different time periods um, hmm. in a way that kind of captures this idea of trauma and how trauma um, has this this horrible ability to bring you right back to a moment in time, um, so you feel like you're you're right back there where you were during that that uh, traumatic event you experienced. And we wanted to find a very eerie, very um, kind of evocative way of bringing the audience back and forward with us in time. Yeah, to create this visceral experience for the audience that really captures that post traumatic stress that the body goes through. Yeah, well, I think you guys did a pretty good job of doing that. (laughs) Um, You know, I wanted to set that up because I wanted to give people a little bit of a teaser before we got into some of the more descriptive uh, things about the film. And uh, the name of the film, as I said, is Violation. 
And here's what is said about the film. A chilling and gruesome portrait of trust, loyalty, and uh, sibling rivalry that pulls the audience through a dark vortex into a PTSD memory smash and untangles a sticky web of trauma and resentment. Yeah, I think I think that is a pretty good description of the film as well. And as you you mentioned, um, it, it does go back and forth in time, and you are seeing these images of what you're referring to, um, just the use of uh, the, the nature shots in the film, really kind of heightens um, the kind of ruthlessness and beauty of, of the natural world. Yeah. Um, and there's a nice duality there between what's happening with Miriam and her uh, quest for uh, vengeance and, mm. um, you know, the questions of morality within nature. You know, when we mm. watch a, a wolf eating a rabbit, we're not really judging that wolf. Um, we don't apply our own kind of human uh, construct of morality onto it. We accept that as a an innate, uh, very natural response. Um, and so the, the, the film really deals with the questions of consent and morality and trying to juxtapose um, the, the natural world with what's happening to Miriam was important to us. Mm. It, it was the the perpetrator and prey. That's what I was trying to think of. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> just when I just couldn't see it. Um, but thank you for explaining that about the nature scenes that we also see that that it heightens that uh, that side of it. And of course, the other thing we should mention about the film is it was shot it with all natural lighting. Yeah, that was something really, I mean, we, we made this film for a very tiny budget. Mm. Um, and part of, we, we really wanted to maximize uh, the kind of, the capabilities of what we could do on screen, even though we had very little money and, we, we decided that shooting at very specific times of day would really help to create this kind of fairy tale like quality to the image. But it made things very difficult for us when we were shooting because we had these small windows of light um, that we could shoot in in mm. order to get the quality that we needed. And it's also something we were really drawn to just as filmmakers in terms of developing a naturalistic visual aesthetic that mm. really grounds the audience into a time and place. And we were experimenting with this on our short films, working closely with our cinematographer, Adam Crosby. So we got to really practice the different techniques of how do you shape natural light in a way that really allows you to still get a controlled image where you are in control of the tone and the mm. mood of mm. the scene. And yeah, like Madeline said, we had so many different schedules and it, we shot some scenes across five days even um, because we only had a sliver of time to shoot one shot. Mm. Um, so we were joking that this is sort of like the micro budget version of the revenant. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Um, you know, I'm, I'm glad you, you mentioned uh, that about the lighting. I think that that tension that you guys bring to this film is again, it made me think of, of that because right off the start from the film, the very first thing we see are very soft uh, opening credits. They're almost out of focus, as with the background. And it, it sets up attention for you right away, doesn't it? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we were really lucky to even get that beautiful shot. I mean, we went back to reshoot the ending of the movie hmm. uh, 
And we noticed there was this gorgeous bridge surrounded by this lush, lush forest. It was actually raining, so we couldn't shoot the shot that we needed to, yet we needed to wait until the rain stopped and we were just down by this lake and noticed this bridge and just... Uh, and this rolling fog and just so... Um, well, yeah, it felt like right out of a fairy tale. And, you know, it's out of focus simply because the movie is dealing with questions of consent around um, consciousness, when what happens when someone's totally unconscious. Um, and we're not used to seeing films that deal with consent mm. um, around a victim who's been unconscious. And, and that was just really important and personal to us. So the film, though you're not aware of it, is is calling back to that moment later in the film. It's, it's, it's as if um, we're, we're witnessing someone open their eyes, and that's the beginning of the movie. How long did it take you guys to write this film? So we actually started writing it, I think, three years ago. Yeah, we started writing it right after we'd shot our second short film. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and then we, we were sort of writing it on and off for about half a year, and then we ended up um, getting funding through Telefilm's Talent to Watch program. Yeah. So that kind of um, lit a fire under us to really... Um, finish a, a, a really solid version of the script. And then we just kept rewriting it um, for about, about another year and a half. And then we, we kept writing while we were in prep with the actors. And I think mm. that's a really vital part of the creative process for us is mm. allowing actors to really challenge us and, and deepen the characters through workshops and rehearsals so that we have the flexibility to uh, workshop and rework the this, this screenplay and then we'll reset it again right before we actually yeah go. we actually rewrote a couple of the scenes during production as well i think mm. it was kind of halfway through we um we rewrote the scene in the shed for example mm. uh, so i think just having that um that flexibility is really crucial to right. be able to realize okay we need to there are some things we're discovering as we're shooting that we need to really incorporate Mm. Madeline, you also star in the film, and, and I'm just wondering, what was that? What is that like for you f- for this particular project to both be writing, producing, directing, and and starring in it? It was actually really wonderful. Um, even though it was an incredibly physically and emotionally demanding role, it, it was wonderful in the sense that we it allowed us both so much creative control. Um, and we just knew that we'd be able to push me as an actor much further than anyone else, um, and that I was really willing to go that distance with it. Well, speaking of going the distance with it, and it certainly seems like you got that out of the other people that you are in the film with as well. Yeah, we we were so lucky with our cast. Um, Jesse Leverkum, who plays Dylan, we Mm. worked with... um, twice before so we already had a very established relationship with him and a really inbuilt trust with him and then Anna Maguire who plays Greta um, was a a friend of mine for many years Uh, it's the first time we worked with her but she was delightful to work with and Obia Beely it was our first time working with him but it it won't be the last it was Mm. he was so open and collaborative and insightful Mm. You know, speaking to you guys both today, you seem like very nice people, <laughs> I have to say. But you've written this really creepy film. <laughs> yeah, I mean, for us, it's a really personal story. Um, mm. We met at the Tip Talent Lab in 2015. Okay. And at the time, we were both just making our own short films. Mm-hmm. Um, but we were, um, I, I guess, secretly looking for a collaborator. And we really bonded over our own shared histories of trauma and abuse in our past. And, um, you know, it's within this kind of genre 
you're so used to seeing um, a really cathartic emotional journey where the audience, you're almost romanticizing revenge and the audience is really cheering on the violence in the film and it's celebrating it. And we really um, wanted to to do something different and instead focus on the destructive uh, nature of revenge. And in many ways, it's an anti-revenge film looking at the consequences and, and also the trauma of revenge itself. And again, it just stems from our own conversations and the film's almost designed to scare ourselves mm-hmm. into never wanting to mm-hmm. seek revenge. Mm-hmm. Um, and it acts as a cautionary tale. And in many ways, it's a tragedy. Yeah. And it also makes you think about, about the, the consequences, like you say, of you don't know where your actions might take another person. Yeah. Um, that, that's completely right. I think, um, we're so interested in all of our work in this idea of recontextualizing characters and recontextualizing the things that people do. Um, hopefully to kind of create more empathy with audiences and, and more thought into your own actions or, or the actions of people close to you. Um, and I think all of the characters in violation are, uh, they're not neither wholly good nor wholly bad. Um, there's a, an idea in these types of revenge films that that the we're seeing this kind of villainous caricature um, chasing down and then assaulting a, an innocent, um, in often cases, virginal woman um, or pure woman at least, and and then the the woman's only recourse being revenge. And we really wanted to challenge that and and just um, create a revenge story where the victim isn't this wonderful, pure person and, and the perpetrator isn't just an evil, villainous. You're listening to Moment of Truth on Element FM in Toronto and Ottawa. My guests here on the show today are the creators of Violation, Writers, producers, and directors Madeline Sims-Fuhr and Dusty Mancinelli. Violation is a chilling and gruesome portrait of trust, loyalty, and sibling rivalry that pulls the audience through a dark vortex into a PTSD memory smash and untangles a sticky web of trauma and resentment. Now, I I also want to mention that uh, I was sent some new information about the film, so I want to congratulate you because you have picked up five uh, Canadian Screen Award nominations that I just found out as well thank yes. you yeah thank we just you. found out yesterday we're really honored it was um a very unexpected surprise and we're really feeling very fortunate mm. and what kind of things have you been hearing uh, since it's been uh, going to screenings yeah i mean so the film is definitely very polarizing because mm. it's uh, incredibly graphic yep. and uh, it challenges um your your kind of expectations of the genre itself so it's subversive and um, that has a tendency to um, provoke a a real discussion among uh, horror fans Mm -hmm. Um, so we noticed that it uh, among audiences uh, we're getting wildly varying responses and it's you know people who really get what we're trying to do and really connecting with it and others who are feeling maybe frustrated by the the ways in which we're subverting the expectations of the genre. Right. Yeah, it's definitely a, a love it or you hate it film. In England, we have a term for that. It's called a Marmite. Um, <laughs> it is, and Marmite is like this either, you either, it's this spread that you put on, on bread or right. toast or a sandwich. And, mm. and it's really, 
you, I think it's delicious, but some people think it's absolutely disgusting. So it's definitely a Marmite film. <laughs> right. Well, thank you for that description. When you, you, you mentioned the, the comments you're getting and the polarizing kind of way that this film is coming across, is that when you say those comments, are they coming back from people within the industry or is that just general comments that you're talking about? Oh, yeah, no, we've been within uh, the industry and I would say just critically, we've been very, it's been uh, really championed, you know, mm-hmm. like we were very lucky to premiere at TIFF and then go on to play Sundance and South mm-hmm. by Southwest. It's like, we've really, uh, programmers with, have really championed the film and, um, the, the awards that we've already gotten have really demonstrated the, the kind of, uh, appreciation from within the industry. I think uh, we're talking specifically about audience responses and that's yeah. something that we're only now getting to see simply because the film's been released in Canada. Yeah. I also think there's a big, we've noticed a big difference between festival audiences and when a film is released on, on a platform and, and goes to everyone. Right. Um, definitely some people, um, people want different things from movies and, yes. I think when people see it's a horror film, there are certain horror audiences that want their horror a specific way. Um, and they don't necessarily want to to be challenged or to watch something that, that is really difficult and makes them feel very uncomfortable. Mm. Um, and and that's, that's what we're just kind of understanding and coming up against now. Mm. Yeah, I think, though, in, I guess, time will tell, though, about how this ultimately will finish up. Uh, you know, I get the sense that, that this film is is on the cusp of, of maybe changing those genres and, and doing something that hasn't been done before. Yeah, we hope it just encourages um, other filmmakers and people making films to, um, you know, work uh, outside the box and to push the boundaries of horror. I I think that's what's really so exciting about the genre right now is that we're seeing the different iterations of how you can explore uh, really unique characters and and also just social, uh, exploring social issues through the genre as a device, I think is is interesting as well. Mm. I also want to come back to something, uh, Madeline, that you said, I, I believe, or Dusty, I'm not sure if, which one of you said, the, the idea of, of trust and uh, working with, uh, with, with Jesse because you have worked with him before. And, you know, that element of trust, I think, really comes through in, in the scenes where there is that seduction sort of going on, but it ends up being something completely different. And, and why I, I say that is because uh, I think that for an actor to perform on screen is one thing. But an actor to perform the things that he performed is something else altogether. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Trust is so vital in all our relationships with our actors because the, what we're looking for in a performance is something that is grounded, natural, and um, where the actor is not inside their own head, where they're not subconscious of their performance. And if they're at all concerned about the way they look or how they're being perceived, then they're it's going to feel false. Every moment will feel false. So you're constantly as a director trying to create that safe space and build trust. And we've been very lucky because we've worked with Jesse Lavercom twice prior and in really demanding roles that really uh, allowed us to build a foundation of trust with him. And we just continuously try to renew that with every project that we work with. Um, and, and part of it is just creating a really safe space where 
uh, Jesse feels incredibly comfortable, has a really clear idea of what we're doing, uh, how we're doing it and why we're doing it. And he's involved in that whole creative process with us. So right. there's nothing. So he's not surprised by anything. There's nothing that's really alienating him. And we work with a really tiny crew. And that, again, allows us to um, create uh, a support system on set where um, no actor is feeling um, alienated by the, the technical parameters of, of filmmaking. Yeah, I think that that's something um, as an actor for me that was so important for us to incorporate into our own process um, is this idea, I think often as an actor, it can, you can be quite alienated from the crew on set and you can feel mm. as if the crew are these technical people and you're on this kind of nebulous emotional side and they mm. don't really know what you're doing and you don't really get what they're doing. And we try to kind of break down that barrier so everyone is equal um, and everyone understands each other's roles and how difficult and technical everything is, the acting and the the um, cinematography and the art direction, everything has a technical side um, and an emotional side, I guess, as well. Um, but we, we really had a crew that was so supportive and so open and, um, and, and trusting of the actors and the actors trusting of them. You know, the other word that comes to mind when I think of, of, of that, uh, that scene playing out is vulnerability. Absolutely. Yeah. And it's, I mean, but Jesse as an actor is incredibly vulnerable and mm. the character in the scene is incredibly vulnerable. Yeah. It's very rare that we would see a scene like this where a woman is um, disempowering a man by, mm. by taking off all of his clothes. And, and he is incredibly uh, in that vulnerable spot. I think Jesse is um, a very curious actor mm. and a very sensitive actor. Right. Uh, and to his credit, he will not perform something if he doesn't completely feel comfortable and also understand um, exactly where the character is coming from. Right. Um, and that I think is what gives his performances such nuance. Right. You know, there's two other things in that particular scene as we go back and forth in time as it plays out that, that really, I think, echo the transitions that I was talking about earlier and and that is one where he is um where, where she's suffocating him and 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 you're holding your breath with this guy forever and it goes on and on and and i thought when is this going to stop how is that how is it you know because at that point you're you're almost taken out of the scene and into the actor's uh person because you're you're saying how can, how can this guy hold his breath that long? How is he still, you know what I'm saying? Really, you know what I'm saying? Well, yeah, I mean, you know, when it comes to the violence in the film, we really wanted to tackle it from a, a grounded perspective as much as possible. So we, we spoke, uh, we did a lot of research speaking with mm. paramedics, uh, you know, right. how long does it actually take yep. um, for, for, for a strangulation to, to mm. occur, someone to uh, suffocate. And you're just not used to seeing the actual times in films. You're just yep. used to seeing the truncated quick versions. Yep. And we wanted, no, like if it really is going to run for a minute and 45 seconds, what does that actually look like? And then it became a technical challenge as directors. Now, how do we do that in a way where it looks so real? And yes, you, you do wonder because it, it, it feels as if there's no way he could be breathing. Right. Uh, but we, I mean, the trick is just, we worked really closely with our production designer and special effects team. And we had designed a really um, unique little breathing apparatus that you couldn't 
uh, see, um, but it meant that he sounded like Darth Vader. And so we had to like replace, re- replace all that sound. That sound yeah. yeah. So that you just had no clue that right. he was breathing. <laughs> Jesse's still alive. <laughs> oh, I'm sure. <laughs> I know there had to be a trick there somewhere. But, um, and then the other thing in that scene is the very end. And I'm not trying to give spoiler alerts. So there's so much in this film. But, um, Madeline, at the end, when you, you've actually killed him. And and that whole scene uh, where you're you're lying on the floor next and, and crying through that that whole part of it as well. Yeah, I think that was that was really the most um, emotionally draining thing to shoot of the whole film. Mm. And there was, a, I mean, physically as well. I think just the the amount of um, emotional engagement that that took to do because we I think we we shot that. Uh, the end of the strangulation hmm. uh, many times and and I had to get to the same emotional uh, level each time um, and I think that was even more exhausting than the days when we we're swimming across a lake and hmm. and it's just it was really important to us to show you that in this moment where she completely loses her humanity hmm. uh, she's taken someone's life that she is still human she is horrified repulsed disgusted and emotionally and yeah, yeah she's in deep remorse for what's just happened and you're you're watching hopefully what feels like a really raw kind of outpour that's coming kind of really a, a guttural response and um that juxtaposition hopefully makes you realize that she's not some uh just cold-blooded serial killer yeah and and yet like you say uh, you do see her do these these things where she turns into uh the the predator and mm-hmm. ends up you know for lack of a better word slaughtering him yeah i mean again it, we it, i think for us it was you were so used to seeing it within this genre um the celebra- celebration of violence mm-hmm. so the the revenge happens at the end of the film and it always ends in a really terrible violent way for for the perpetrator um but it's designed in a way to make us cheer and and really the the film is structured um in a way so that the revenge happens in the middle Mm. and again when she's doing when she's getting rid of the body you see her repulsion at the same time Mm. and and again hopefully it's so hard to watch that it makes you really understand um, what the toll is for for this woman that it's really uh, corroding her morality and sense of self and it's mm. unraveling and it is her. taking away her humanity right ultimately right and we just have a couple of minutes left and then of course you have ice cream <laughs> <laughs> yes <laughs> please elaborate ice cream pardon yeah. me he said everyone loves ice cream everyone loves ice cream especially homemade yeah <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, we wanted to find an image that felt very innocuous. And very childlike. Right. Yeah. When we associate ice cream, we think about, you know, happiness and these pleasant moments from our youth. Yep. And we don't think of harm or danger or bodies. Uh, Right. (laughs) And it's kind of uh, coming back to this idea of the film being at its core about these two sisters who just cannot let go of the way that they saw each other as kids mm. um, to that, to the complete detriment of their, their um, relationship as adults, that they're stuck in this kind of arrested development where 
they see each other in these damaging and damning ways. Um, and, and the ice cream is kind of symbolic of that as well. Right. But, you, you know, that relationship between the sisters, you do get a sense to some degree uh, of what the character might be capable of because of those early uh, things they talk about when they were kids. And, and Greta says, you know, you, you went and, and poured uh, bleach or something on one of the neighbor's flowers and I asked you not to. And, and it seemed very over the top to some degree in, in terms of how she was viewing it and how, how, what the result was. Yeah, I think Miriam has a savior complex within the film where she feels that she's uh, her sister's protector that she's taking care of her and her sister's telling her this whole time, you think mm-hmm. you've been protecting me, but you've actually been damaging mm-hmm. my relationships. And that's really how the film culminates in Miriam finally realizing that she's completely destroyed her sister's life, but it's too late for her to, to fix it. Yeah. Fascinating stuff. Uh, congratulations on the film and all the best with it in the future. And uh, as I mentioned, uh, it uh, began its Canadian digital theater release, theatrical release uh, on the 19th of March at, at TIFF. And it uh, then was released in Vancouver on the 26th. And so where can people find this? Yeah, I would direct everyone to um, the TIFF Bell Lightbox website. Yep. Uh, you can find Violation there to rent. Um, and the VIF, and the VIF, the VIF well. platform as well, and mm-hmm. it will be on those platforms for another month. And then our Canadian distributor, uh, Pacific Northwest Pictures, will make an announcement very soon about uh, where it will continue to live in Canada, which we're really excited about. Nice. So announced. Right. Well, congratulations to both of you and everyone involved with the film. And uh, again, I wish you all the best with it. And yeah, look forward to seeing what else you guys are going to bring forward in the next little while. Thanks a lot. Thank you so much. You're very welcome. Thank you very much for joining us on the show. Take care. Cheers. Bye-bye. And they are the voices of writer, producer, and directors Madeline Sims-Fuer and Dusty Mancinelli, who brought us the film Violation. That is now in distribution across the country. As they say, you can go to the Tiff Bell Lightbox Theater to get tickets on that. And that is our show for today. Thank you for listening. I'm your host, David Moses. We'll see you again tomorrow. This has been Moment of Truth with David Moses. Element. Element. Element FM.